I was gonna make a fun intro, but then my wife contracted the novel coronavirus, so you get this instead. Don't worry, she's fine. Hello and welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. I am your host, Andy, and I'm here with my co-host, Anthony. Pretty much the only reason I bathe my dog, Maddox. I'm glad you didn't say a guy who vacuums up a lot of bugs because I was feeling very guilty about that conversation. Which is <laughs> Oh, good. I got that right. I that on tape, so I can maybe drop that at the end of the episode. Oh, no. Just to give people a little preview of what's going on. You just say you have a cleaner house than me, so when I bring the dog over here, I just feel like she should be a little cleaner. Our house I, is I like... I appreciate that. Our house is like... It's just... Ground zero. You have, a, you it's have hopeless. a clean house. You're very tidy people. I don't. I would. I think you know. After knowing lots of adults and you know growing <laughs> up and seeing all different kinds of ways people live, I feel pretty confident that we're like pretty average. We're like right in the middle. Okay. I go half the houses I've been to. I'm like, yeah, this house is cleaner than mine. Half the houses I go into, I'm like, this house is a lot dirtier than mine. So <laughs> I feel like. So you're, you're like you're in the middle, but there's a big gap right underneath you. Well, I think the small differences are felt strongly, you know, like if someone has something that they don't clean the way you clean it, then you're very likely to be like, oh, yeah. And simultaneously, I come into your house and I'm like, oh, you clean that? (laughs) Because I noticed that something doesn't have the little layer of dust on it that it just always has in our house. Light switches, the little space underneath the dish drying rack. Uh, Yeah. Man, there there are a lot of weird things in a house that can get dirty. Well, Sadie's on her way to mess all that up for you and just uh, give you a good excuse to do a deep cleaning. She's going to put little hairs on top of all of your your light (laughs) switches. Little hairs. Little hairs on all the light switches. Oh, no. It's going to be great. (laughs) And I tell them... (laughs) <laughs> I'm uh, I'm gonna be out next week. I'm doing a little bit of traveling, so uh, next week we have a special bonus episode coming to you that is not gonna feature Anthony and I, but I think you all will enjoy. So uh, I won't say anymore. I'll leave people with bated breath for that bonus episode. But this week we got a normal episode of Lucky Paper Radio. Before we get into it, Anthony, I have a question I want to ask you. It's a question I saw on Twitter. It's making the rounds, and I feel like it is the kind of thing I would love to discuss with you. What do you think there are more of in the world, doors or wheels? Doors or wheels? Okay, so there's one really important question. There's quite a few important questions, I would argue, but Does what's your first one? Does a doorknob count as a wheel? The definition's the most important thing, right? Uh-huh. Like, what is a wheel? What's I would not call a doorknob a wheel, personally. Now, would you call a pulley a wheel or a gear? Yes, I would. Both of those you consider wheels? I'm going to say there's a lot more wheels than doors. That's where I came down to. I feel like my first intuition was, like, thinking about my own life, that I feel like there are way more doors in my own life. Just I'm like, I, we only have one car. We each have a couple bikes. And like, you know, I got a pair of rollerblades. But then after that, it's like just doors. Doors all the way down. Every single cabinet's covered in doors. But yeah, then, now you're now it's like, okay, so if I'm looking at this vacuum cleaner over here, it's got, I'm sure, a whole bunch of things that are kind of wheels. You know, it has the impeller that's a round thing that spins. Well, impeller's definitely not a wheel. Well, I, I might call that a, we're gears. Do you call, call gears wheel? I uh, think, I, I came down that even if you don't count gears and pulleys as wheels, I still think wheels wins out because the thing is most doors are at like a roughly human scale. I think there are tons. Well, of that's little, where I'm trying to go. Wheels. Like, do you talk about like the trapdoor on a trapdoor spider is a door? The valve in said vacuum cleaner is that a door? If you're counting the cabinet door as a door, I think you got to just count all these things. I don't think I would count the door of a trapdoor spider as a door. I'm gonna give it to the spiders. <laughs> I think I think they deserve that. So where do you come down with how you're with your liberal definitions then? What do you think is the winner? My my hunch is wheels. I think it's wheels too. Anyway, write into us and do tell some, us what some, you think. Uh, what do you call it? Some Fermi estimation. I would love to, you know, if we had like a popular, uh, dumb pop science YouTube channel, we could just spend two months trying to answer this question as thoroughly as possible, making a YouTube video about it. It will be sponsored by Brilliant or KiwiCo or one of those companies that sponsors all those uh, science channels. And that could be our job. But it's not our job. Instead, talking about magic cards is our job. Except it's also not our job because we're not paid to do that either. But we're doing it nonetheless. And uh, on this episode, we're going to be talking about two-player draft formats. Talking about the ones we've tried, what we like about them, what we don't like about them. With a special focus on Houseman Draft, which I think is kind of the new kid on the block. I've seen this draft format be a little bit ascendant in the cube circles for people's preferred way to do a two-player draft. So we're going to talk about all of that and also how those draft formats are affected by the design of an environment, which I think is an important detail that I don't feel like people often touch on when they discuss these kinds of things. But first, Anthony, 
we are going to do a pack one, pick one from a listener-submitted cube. This week, our cube comes to us from listener Monstrimonium. And Monstrimonium has worked quite hard to develop a Hand Matters cube, which is a novel design goal I have not heard about before. So the purpose of this cube is to make the hand matter in more ways than just the normal way. Which Finally, is- the hand matters in magic. <laughs> right. I mean, the hand obviously matters in that it's your, your cards you can cast, but this is going to be referring to the hand in all kinds of different ways, which I think is a very interesting design constraint to work within. Yeah, I think it's a very cool design. I, I, when I first thought about it, you know, the obvious things that that jump out to you are things like hand hate, discard effects, and that seems fairly narrow. But I really like that they've actually pushed in a lot of other interesting directions. Sort of the the most far from from the obvious uh, sort of effects is daybound and nightbound, where these are just effects that care a lot about when you're casting spells. So I, I really right. appreciate the way they've taken a lot of different approaches to the things that make the hand matter in different ways. Monstrimonium also pointed out that when Magic has made mechanics that have explicitly cared about the hand, they've kind of been in unsuccessful contexts, right? Like original Kamigawa cared about hand size, but that set had quite a few development issues, one would argue, with regards to power level that is not necessarily attached to the mechanics themselves being inherently unfun, but was a little bit of an unsuccessful set. And so I like the idea of trying to say, all right, well, here's the thing that hasn't really worked before. So what does it feel like if it works? And I don't know. But I think this pack can give us some insight into that, maybe. Yeah, the other challenge with some of those hand matters effects are if they either care about you having very few cards in hand or having lots of cards in hand, it either means your goal is to cast all your spells and then have nothing else to do or discard your hand and have nothing else to do or you want to have a big hand so you just don't cast your spells. And both of those are kind of like not fun things to do in Magic. So I disagree. I think casting all your spells is very fun. Uh, I think there are some issues with Hellbent specifically having zero cards in hand. That takes a lot of mystery out of out of the game. But it I does. And do I, think there's a lot of interesting space to still be explored and by recontextualizing those effects. So, you know, they matter and interact with other effects. It makes a lot of sense and seems very interesting. And ultimately, I feel like my criticism of Hellbent is partially that, that like once you are Hellbent, it's kind of like no you more, did it. No more hate information. <laughs> I think it's more so that it like can be snowballing because... If you are the first one to get Hellbent, you are the first one to have essentially deployed all of your resources. And right. then for your cards to also be better because of that, I think could lead to some naturally snowballing play patterns. Anyway, let's see what Monstrimonium has done with this cube. I like saying that name, Monstrimonium. I feel like I'm doing the uh, how to win friends and influence people just by saying Monstrimonium's name over and over again. Great cube, Monstrimonium. Anyway, the pack is as follows. Shine, Shadow, Snarl, Bird, Admirer. Immortal Servitude, Spirit of the Hunt, Moon Rager's Slash, Into the Night, Hive of the Eye Tyrant, Search Party Captain, Fairy Seer, Survival Cache, Paliano the High City, Fearful Villager, Necrogoyf, Dauntless Bodyguard, and Shredded Sails. So we talked a little bit about the design goals, Anthony. Putting our player hats on now, what are you taking out of this pack? I think there's a couple reasonable options. There's two pretty good fixing lands. We have a Snarl and Paliano of the High City. I honestly don't love Paliano for a lot of other reasons, but if I'm if, if you're making me put my player hat on, I do think it is a strong card. So either one of those lands I think is a pretty reasonable pick. We have a couple pretty good aggressive white cards in Dauntless Bodyguard and Search Party Captain. I think if that's what you're interested in doing, either of those are solid picks, but maybe aren't really leaning into the themes. So as a player that's trying to explore the space, maybe not what I'm interested in starting with. I actually really like Necrogoyf here. It's a big madness payoff, and if that's supported, I feel like the ceiling on if this cube is successful, that's going to be a really fun card to play with and quite powerful. So... I think I'm leaning towards either that or Paliano the High City. I will say this of Paliano. So Paliano is the conspiracy land where when you draft it, the player to your left, you and the player to your right all choose a color and it produces those colors. Comes into play untapped, just does the thing. Not as good pack one pick one. You don't know what color you're going to be playing yet. You don't necessarily know you can name a valuable color with it. Now, it's still going to fix for three yeah, how, colors. How good is it if it's just three random colors? It's probably still pretty good. It's probably a pretty good card. Like, the chance you end up in exactly the other two colors is not that likely. You have to be in some subset of those, and maybe you end up playing three or four colors. Like, I'm very thrilled to open this pack to pick one. I'll take that mm-hmm. every single time. That's great, because at least I know I can fix for one of my colors, and the chance that one of my opponents names one of my other colors is pretty likely. Pack one, pick one. I'm not quite as excited about it. So... Yeah, I don't know. I think uh, the cards that jump out at me, I agree Necrogoyf just feels like a power outlier here in terms of raw rate. I also kind of feel similar about Spirit of the Hunt. 
which yeah, is that's a fair. three mana three three with flash. When it enters the battlefield, each other creature you control, that's a wolf or a werewolf, gets plus O plus three until end of turn. And there are a lot of wolves in this cube. I mean, there's a bunch even just in this pack. Right. We can see that there's already quite a few in this pack alone. Even without that, though, you know, a three mana three three with flash is a lot better than some of the cards we're looking at here. And I would definitely expect a flash archetype to be a thing, even without looking at the list of this cube. But with hand size matters, I think playing my stuff at instant speed is going to matter. And so having a decent threat I can roll out on three mana makes sense. Ultimately, I agree with you. I think I'm going to take the Necrogoyf. Yeah. I, I, just because it's cooler. It's cooler than Spirit of the Hunt. Sorry, Spirit of the Hunt. I want to give a little shout out to Search Party Captain too. This is that very recent four mana 2-2 two, two in white that costs one less to cast for each creature you attack with this turn. When it enters the battlefield, you draw a card. Just a little cantripping creature. I'm That's- curious how people have uh, how people's opinions on this card have changed because this was one of the cards people were really excited about from Innistrad Midnight. Specifically, Pauper Cube designers were very excited about it. People with unrestricted cubes were much lower on it, I think, just because there's more things kind of crushing those effects out. I am curious to know if people have played this at various power levels and how it has turned out for them. Here, I, I like it a lot as just a very safe reliable pick it's you know one white pip it's going to get played in my deck if i'm even a little bit of white and then just drawing a card is, is good i don't expect to be like a dedicated all-in aggro deck but this seems like an environment where value is going to be important and i think a 2-2 that draws a card is is very good so yeah those are the cards i'm looking at i am just going to take that necrogoy though i think it's the most powerful card in the pack don't know the environment well enough to know how highly i should be prioritizing fixing but i feel like in pretty much every cube you know fixing always has kind of this relative power level thing where in every cube, I'll take the best cards over the fixing. No matter what the best cards are, you could put fetches and shock lands in a cube with a bunch of draft chaff. I'm still going to take the best draft chaff over the fixing. I guess the only time I wouldn't do that is if it was a super narrow power band where like the best cards were really not that much better than all the other cards. But on a normal power level distribution in a normal cube, the best non-land cards are the highest picks. And I think Necrogoyf could be that for this cube based on this pack. Like, it feels enough better than the other cards in this pack that I think it's probably worth it. And yeah, if I get to turn on with Madness, I'll be very happy. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that's really cool about Necrogoyf in this context is... is the art. The art. <laughs> and the last thing that's really cool, <laughs> in addition to just being a, a Madness enabler for you and a Madness payoff for you, it also forces your opponent to discard cards as well, which w- when your opponent is trying to do specific things and control their hand size, it could actually be interestingly disruptive. Yeah, to change that math for them each right. turn, I think, is uh, is very real. We're both on this cool card, Necrogoyf. I've wanted to find an environment where this thing could really shine, and uh, maybe it's this cube, because it's a very cool card. I'd like to play with it sometime. It would definitely be interesting in Irregular Cube, where the, the Madness deck is actually pretty cool. Is it in the Mono Black Cube? You know, I haven't updated that cube in a while. That's so fair. I think that's we can't all update all of our cubes. I think this is a good Irregular Cube edition, at least for the rare module. For it might sure. be a yeah, little yeah. bit too spicy for the main module. Too spicy. Ooh, too spicy. Thank you, Monstermonium, for sending in your cube. And uh, very excited to hear about cubes of varied design goals out there in the world. So send yours in if you got a cube of a novel design approach to mail at luckypaper.co. Include your name and pronouns, and we will do it on the show eventually. We've come around to kind of doing these whenever we feel like it, whenever we have some time to fill. It's a sometimes treat. Anthony, we did some drafts of my cube over the weekend and I specifically wanted to like grind out a couple houseman drafts because I have heard people speaking very highly of this draft format and I'd done it a couple times in my cube in the past but I'd never like really done drafts with like an eye to what makes it tick. So first I'm going to explain the rules and then I'm curious to get your impressions of the houseman draft. So the way this format works is it's a two-player draft format. Each player gets 45 cards at random from the cube You could think of this, if you want, as nine packs of five, but you can also just make it one stack of 45. That's totally fine. And then you also have a stack of 81 cards at random from the cube. This similarly could be thought of nine packs of nine if you wanted to. But in this format, there's really no reason to arrange these as packs. And normally, I'm a big fan of actually breaking up the packs. I know you, Anthony, will oftentimes make the packs ad hoc and keep track of how many packs you've opened in a grid draft, for example, I usually like making packs ahead of time because then you like you can... taking a bunch of extra time to make the packs and stack them up before you take them, pick them up again. <laughs> well, I like to kind of see how, how much of the draft is left. And I guess, you know, if I had just taken the time to count out all of the individual cards in a grid draft so that I had just one stack, I, they wouldn't have to be in individual packs. But it's kind of a tall stack with a grid draft. So I tend to make packs individually. Here you got two small stacks of 45, a stack of 81. And what you do is each player draws a hand of five cards 
And also you make a three by three grid, just like a grid draft from that 81 card stack. And then alternating, you decide who goes first by rolling a dice or however you want to decide. Alternating, each player is going to take a card from the grid in the center, which is face up grid, and replace it with a card in their hand, which is a hidden zone. So swapping basically one card from your hand with one card in the grid. And you're each going to do that three times. The draft format stipulates that you must make three exchanges. You can't pass or you know choose not to. So you open five cards and you're either going to end up with two of those cards still in your hand and three cards from the grid. Or if you want to, you can put a card back into the grid from your hand in an earlier pick. And if your opponent doesn't, t- doesn't pick it back up, you can put it back in your hand in a later pick. And you do this nine times for your 45 cards and all the 81 cards in the stack. And you end up drafting a little bit less than half of a 360 card cube in terms of the cards you're seeing, you know, a few cards less. And you get a lot of agency over the cards you end up playing with, right? Because you've gotten to directly choose 27 of your 45 card pool, right? 27 of those cards you chose from the grid, you took them directly and you discarded a card you didn't care about anymore. And the cards you kept in hand and didn't choose you kind of also implicitly chose because you chose to keep them in your hand instead of discarding them. So you have a really a ton of agency over your draft. It ends up being quite powerful. I would say the most powerful decks I've ever experienced in a two-player draft format. I should mention this format is designed by a player named Miles Hausman, hence the name Hausman Draft, and popularized by Miles Hausman's friend, who happens to be Ryan Sachs, who is a well-known content creator, writer, and cube aficionado. So that is how this draft format came to be. What did you think of our Houseman drafts yet? Was this your first time Houseman drafting? This was my first time. We did a couple with your cube, uh, your Bond Magic cube, which is a pretty high-powered but quote-unquote fair environment. I'm always excited just to see and try out new draft formats. So as a baseline, I'm excited. We got a new way to draft. Yeah. Especially two-player drafts can be... I actually think there are some very good formats, but they are one of the ones that is seen as less, I think, effective or less easy to do by the, the cube community at large. So... Having more options, I think, is just a great thing. The actual play experience, I mean, we're playing Magic. We're having a good time. But it was a little bit of a weird experience. I think there are certain aspects of the design that lead you to make some weird kinds of choices during the gameplay. And the decks had a very particular texture, I think. It might have been just me doing bad job drafting. But I think it sort of forced you to draft in a certain way that tends to create certain kinds of decks. I thought you had a really good observation at the end of the draft, which was that some of the picks are just not fun, right? Because yeah. you are forced to make these three exchanges, and sometimes you open a pack and you're like, well, four of these five cards are great for me, and you are forced to exchange three of them, or if you like you know, all four of them, you can exchange the one you don't like, pick up another card. Now you've got five cards you like, and now you must exchange two of them or put one down to pick it back up. It puts you in these positions where you're like, my deck is better if I don't make an exchange right now, but I'm forced to by the rules of the draft format to do that. And it's noteworthy that I can't think of any of the draft format that ever forces you to make a decision that makes your pool worse, right? Like you're always just getting more cards. And sometimes you get a pack that has nothing great for you. Sometimes you have a pack where you have to pass really good stuff because it was full of good stuff. But every time you're making a decision, your decision is improving your deck. It's improving your pool. And that's not the case with this draft format. And I, I do feel it too. Like I, I agree. It puts you in these spots where you're like, I don't want to make this decision. This is not fun for me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that that's really interesting to think about from a design perspective, because so with with each set of cards, you have five cards, I have five cards, there's nine where we're going to make some swaps back and forth before we set aside those and add them to our pools. And I think forcing both players to say, hey, you're going to make three actions and they are obligatory. Right. Makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. It it fixes sort of the issues of if I just decline to make a, a choice, then my opponent then doesn't have any new information to work with they're just saying like okay well i'm just gonna make multiple swaps back to back and i don't get new choices because you haven't changed the set of cards which is less fun for them too to be like well yeah then there's weird edge cases like if you decline the first pack and then i make a swap are you still allowed to make a swap in the second pack or have you just f6 from this whole pack mm-hmm. and there's potentially a lot of memory issues of well who went first last time well how many you cards have you taken and, out of this pack yeah like i think that a lot of the logistics just get easier if you just say hey the steps are mandatory they are not changing but the counter to that is that, yeah, you do end up in situations where it's like, I I took my five, I really like four of these cards. and Or I'm, even three of these cards. Or three of them, and I'm going to get stuck in a situation where unless I'm going to try and, you know, put down a card that's going to hopefully you let me take it back. <laughs> yeah, wheel. I'm just going to end up having to make these negative choices, which doesn't feel great. Yeah. And, and it, I, it came up, I'll say, not infrequently. Like no, a, yeah, I quite say, a number of packs felt that way. Absolutely. I, I agree. It comes up a lot. So that's a defining feature of the draft format, I think. I think the decisions are 
difficult. So if you're like after difficult decision making, like there's a lot of interesting counterplay in terms of oftentimes it's like, all right, well, I'm not going to play this card, but it's a really good card that if my opponent is going to play, it's going to make their deck quite a bit better. There is the sort of zero sum heads up like counterplay of don't put this one down or put it down last if I'm the person that went second. So you don't have a chance to pick up this good card for your deck. There is a lot of interesting decision space there. And so I think the draft is challenging, but fundamentally, what I think it really highlights is just how fundamentally fun drafting normally is, right? Every decision is just making your deck better. It's like this snowballing effect of like, yes, my deck is getting better and better and better and better and better. And that's part of why it's so fun to draft. You get new information, you get to make fun decisions. And here it's like, not as fun because some of your decisions are making your deck worse. And you're like, well, how, which decision here makes my deck less worse? And that's way less fun than which decision makes my deck more better. Which I feel like is a little bit counter to what we talk about a lot on the show where we are focused on game design and, you know, you're trying to solve the system. What does it matter if you're losing a little versus gaining not as much? Like there's still a baseline. And uh, we talk about that with power level, though, not with fun. Well, I think it is similar in that, you know, we've had this whole conversation about how it doesn't matter if all the cards in a cube are lower powered, you're still playing against another opponent. And so you still have, you know, the same chances of winning and the same opportunity to make decisions that matter. Mm -hmm. But for many people, just having more powerful cards does just make it fun. And that is important. I do think it's different here, though, because like these are players, right? And they're trying to draft a good deck. And so... I guess I would say that my, my counterpoint to that is that I would think this draft format is still in some ways less fun in a very high-powered cube than a different draft format would be in a very low-powered cube. Like, I'm taking less, I'm taking more powerful cards in the high-powered cube, but I'm still forced to, into these weird corners where I have to do something to make my deck worse. And it feels like normal draft forgives you of things like that, but with variance. It's like, oh, the patch just fell that way. I had no control sure. over it. And here, you also don't have control over it in the sense that you have to give three cards back based on the rules of the draft so you can't change that but it forces you to actively take that action put the card down and that just feels bad it's like it's making you do the thing that is uh adding that variance and depth the other facet to that is not only are you potentially making picks that make your pool worse which we saw came up it's also potentially making picks that make your opponent's deck better and not in the sense of like a grid draft where it's just like oh i left something on the table you're actively saying like well i really need that fixing land to make my deck better mm-hmm. but that does mean I'm giving you a smuggler's copter and that feels very bad. Yeah. The one sort of edge case of that where I think it does lead to really positive feeling moments is where the person who's picked second does get an opportunity in that third pick to put down a card their opponent doesn't get to take. So I like the the decision making of trying to optimize for can you sneak something in that isn't going to function in your deck, but you know your opponent wants in that last pick. That's one of my favorite features of the draft format, I think, which is that I was not convinced at the end of our drafts that going first was an advantage because going second has that very distinct advantage to it. So it's like you get a very different advantage when you're going second. Obviously, the person going first gets first crack at making a swap from that grid. But it felt much more balanced to me. Like I was, I'd be happy to go second or first. I wouldn't feel like I was at any kind of explicit advantage or disadvantage. Right. Whereas in that a, bonus, a grid draft, which I feel like we're just going to use a lot as the comparison point, going second always means not only do you not get choice of which cards, but a lot of your choices will just get fewer cards. Yeah. Well, at the end of a grid draft, you both right. In both cases, you're both swapping back and forth. You just so get first bite of the, the apple. Wash, but yeah, first, just considering yeah. in every individual round. I think I agree where it feels much more balanced in one individual round, whereas in a grid yes, draft, exactly. definitely the person who's going first Precisely. is favored. Overall, this is a pretty small quibble, I would say, but something I definitely noticed and I think is very notable of this particular draft format. And there are definitely other esoteric two-player draft formats I have not done that might have similar attributes, but this is the only draft format I've ever done where I felt like that was the case, where I was being forced to make decisions that made my deck worse. So something to note there, I, I don't think that really affects my likelihood to do this again in the future maybe the only thing i would say is that i would be slightly less inclined to do this with somebody who was very new to my cube just because i think you really want to ride that high of how fun a draft is to get people over the the hump of just feeling intimidated by a new environment and not like they don't know what's going on and so i probably wouldn't choose this for somebody that was new to my cube or certainly new to magic in general though if you're new to magic in general you're probably not playing my cube frankly right yeah i definitely think it is an expert level draft format whereas even grid draft it's like take some cards you you know there's a little confusion around can you take diagonals or whatever but it's pretty easy to explain I and grid draft, has by a lot more steps. grid draft by comparison i think is perfect for people that are new to a cube because everything's face up they can say why right. is this card here right and you can Absolutely. explain it to them and it didn't have to like give you any secret information and disadvantage themselves in the draft to do so so 
small note there. But overall, it's it's a quibble. I do think the the main appeal of this format and the reason why I think we've seen a lot of people adopting it for their own two-player drafts is that you get very powerful decks. I mean, like I said, you're seeing half of the cube, which is a lot of the cube, you know, and you're getting a lot of agency over which chunk of that half of the cube you end up playing with. Let's get into how that actually affects the breakdown of the decks. Talk a little bit about the grain you think this format has in terms of what kind of decks it encourages you to play. So I, I find this a little bit difficult to really think about concretely, like what is actually happening that is different. But part of it is that it's extremely powerful. Another part is that I feel like there's, there is that tension between not wanting to give your opponent powerful cards so it feels reasonable just to try and take as many of the power outliers as you can and as much of the fixing as you can and just try and make a little bit of a pile is kind of what I felt forced to do. Does that fit with your feeling at all? Well, so we did two drafts and I, I don't think either of my decks ended up being piles per se. They both ended up being three colors. And I'll get a little bit to the fixing in a second because I think a lot of this is a combination of the draft format and also the peculiarities of how my cube happens to be designed that led totally, to this, yeah. right? I, I absolutely want to try this with a bunch of different kinds of cubes. Right, because exactly. It, it, there are so many compl- complex factors that fit together. But I felt like I actually had pretty focused decks both times. The first draft I think was a very focused Esper Control deck. Like, two creatures, basically, like, nothing but removal spells and card draw and a Planeswalker and a Primordial Mist. And uh, that deck, I think, was really fun. I ended up winning the first game just with Retrofitter Foundry and Urza Saga. And Ooh, that it, was, I mean, you Gitaxian probed me and saw my Force Spike and my... Uh, yeah, on the on the play, I Gitaxian probed Anthony, saw his Force Spike in hand, and then played a Sensei's Divining Top. And it was like, you were also kind of controlling. And I don't know how the control deck wins after I've seen your Force Spike and I have a Sensei's Divining Top in play to dump all my four spike mana into every single turn. Mm-hmm. And then I drew play around sensor, four spike so the whole like, game. Oh, great. Now you're playing around two cards without even knowing it. <laughs> yeah, play around four spike the whole game and still use all that mana to pump into my top so I actually get to do stuff with it. That was kind of a devastating opener. So that deck I thought was pretty focused. And then my second deck was a little more good stuffy, but it was a mid-range deck, which are kind of more good stuffy in my environment anyway. They can afford to play a lot of different kinds of cards. They're not as focused on doing just one kind of thing. I think really what happened here is like, because my cube has so much fixing, I have 80 lands in my cube right now. They're not all fixing lands. I would say, I'm not going to look at the numbers. I'm going to guess eight of them are, let's say 10. Eight of them, 10 of them are non-fixing lands or utility lands of some kind. We're opening about half the cube. So we're going to see 40 lands-ish and 35-ish of them are going to be fixing lands. And because of the nature of this draft format, we can make sure that all the fixing lands end up in our pools, right? We just never right, leave right. one. We never leave one on the table. So each of us are going to have, you know, 18 fixing lands in our pool, basically. And because of that, because of my fixing density, I think it does make playing many colors trivial if you want to. If you want to take your approach of just taking power liars and fixing, you will very consistently be able to get a reasonable four or five color mana base with my particular cube based on my breakdown of fixing. Which is convenient for your opponent because then they only need to do four, three damage to you because you Okay, that was my backup yourself. nickname for you because in our second game, you did do 16 damage to yourself. That was with just that was your lands. quite an experience. And then I killed you with the Cave of the Frost Dragon and then a small shark typhoon it was token. A, it was a tense end game. It was, actually. It was, that was an interesting game because that's happened to me before. I've been on the other end of that of killing myself completely with my lands and my opponent killed me with whatever at the end. And the end, you're like wow, I really did 16 damage myself with my own lands. Was that necessary? When you look back on the game, and sometimes I think it wasn't, and I've actually started to, in my own cube, get my shock lands into play tapped way more often than I ever used to. Like before, it was like, I would assume 85, 90% of the time, the shock lands are coming into play untapped. 100% of the time, I have something to do with that mana. They're coming in untapped. Now I'm much different, I would say. I would say now I'm more like maybe three quarters of the time, I'm deciding not only do I have something to do with this mana, but I think it's important and worth the life to do with it at this spot. That's a whole other conversation. But, you know, it's interesting that in hindsight, you're like, well, I actually kind of had to do that. Because if at any point I didn't bring my land into play untapped, then I would have fallen behind and taken more damage from whatever I was using a removal spell to answer or putting up a blocker for. It's this weird, like, back and forth where actually it was maybe correct for you. It's like, yeah, I needed to have my untapped shock land so I could destroy your threat that would have done three damage to me that turn. So it's like, okay, I still came out ahead in the, the right. resource of life. but Or in some ways you could say that like my deck didn't do almost anything to you. So my deck like doesn't matter what my deck was doing. But it, it definitely did because if I hadn't been putting all that pressure on you the entire right, game, right. you could have just afforded to bring all of your shock lands into play tapped 
you would have had 12 more life, and then I wouldn't have been able to then kill you Earl with the would have the Frost mattered. Dragon. Then Earl would have mattered. It did still kind of matter. You gained, Kind of mattered. I guess you did way more than that, because you gained at least six life over the course of that game. That's so, true. So, <laughs> did, you do, did you do 22 I, damage I mean, I had an ancient tomb lands? and not a single basic. Don't worry about it. Yeah, it was, it was quite a deck. Anyway, so I think that's the nature of my particular cube, but it is worth noting that, like, if I was designing a cube and I expected to very often draft it in this way... I would not be on the high density of mana fixing that I'm currently on. That was designed largely for eight-person drafts, and there I really like that density of fixing for a lot of reasons. Here, it felt like overkill for sure. Yeah. So you mentioned the the fact that this is a really high agency draft format. You know, you're starting with a pack of five, and then you get to pick three. So you're basically locked. How do you even phrase this? I think a lot about how to objectively quantify the amount of control you have over these different draft formats. And here, it's not really a good way to say it other it's, than it's like... It's like you're picking five cards from a set of 14, right? Which is a lot. Like, that's a lot yes. of choice. And it's not even, as dictated by, you know, packs wheeling and having half the pack missing. Even kind of bigger because your opponent could put a card down, right, that wasn't in right. your pack yeah, that wasn't true. in the nine. So yeah, every time you're choosing five from a set of 15 and 17... Because your opponent could put down the same card and pick it up, put it on, pick it up. Anyway, it doesn't matter. We need Frank Carson on here to talk about <laughs> how many cards you see in a draft of different draft formats. Well, because there's, there's, there's a lot of factors. Right? It's how many cards you see and also like the context in which you pick them, right? Because you see a lot of cards in a grid draft, but the nature of a grid draft... Should we explain what a grid draft is? Is there a chance yeah. that we... I'm going to briefly explain what a grid draft is because we, we've referenced it so many times. A grid draft is a, a two-player draft format where you make some number of packs of nine cards. We usually play with 18, but you could, of course, do more or less if you want your decks to be more or less powerful. And you arrange each pack in a three-by-three grid face-up with you and your opponent. And you alternate taking a row and a column from that pack. So you always get three cards or two cards if you choose to take one of the smaller remaining rows or columns after your opponent goes first. But that pick is constrained by the placement of those cards, right? Like, I can look at a pack and say, well, these three cards are fantastic for me, but they are not in the same row or column, so I can't get all three. So now I'm deciding on which sort of row or column is going to give me the best options for my pool moving forward. So there you see more cards in a grid draft than you actually see in this particular draft format, but you have a lot less agency over how you pick them because you're forced into picking them in specific ways, and you only get one pick out of each pack instead of getting three exchanges out of each pack. So it's really hard to like quantify how these drafts work, but... Just doing it, I can tell you that I feel like I have way more control over what my deck ends up looking like. If you take the... We had 171 cards between the two of us, right? That's 90 plus 81. And I felt like I had a pretty big influence over what chunk of those 171 cards I ended up with, right? Right. You only got to shield from me ever seeing 18 of them. Like, I mean, again, you could do the put the card down, pick the same one back up if you wanted to, but it seems like kind of an edge case. Really, you had... Nine packs, which I didn't get to see two cards. Maybe 18 cards in your pool I didn't get to see. The rest of them I had a chance to take for my own deck if I wanted to prioritize them, which is it's a lot of control you have over what you're doing, which again results in very powerful decks. And so I think if what you want is decks that are as or more powerful than, what's the word for a draft that goes well, where everybody's kind of in their lane, no one's eating each other. Like You ever have one of those drafts where everyone's deck just like got everything they wanted and it just kind of like worked out? What do we call that? Just a fortuitous draft, a lucky draft. I want to call it the opposite of a train wreck, which is like a train station, but that just sounds horrible. So a train trip, train, just regular. <laughs> it's good train times. Uh, if you want your decks to be as good as a, as a lucky draft of your, of your cube with eight people, or honestly, I think even quite a bit better. I think this is a, a good format to, to achieve that. Well, I just wanted to touch on a question I had about that. So I think that we both agree that it is higher agency in terms of the control you have over the cards that end up in your deck. And I think maybe why that gives it a very different feel from other two-player formats is that there is this natural tendency in a two-player format that, or at least in a face-up two-player format, that you know what your opponent is doing and can counterplay against it. So if I see you're drafting aggro, I can draft mid-range, or I see you're drafting an artifact theme, I'll make sure to pick up some artifact removal and when you have this much agency i feel like you just get into a weird cycle where your deck has less identity almost it's just like you're just trying to play against what your opponent is drafting and i could see you know if we take a very concrete axis let's imagine and not get too deep into the idea of mid-range beats aggro control beats mid-range and aggro beats control just seems, for the record just gonna, i oppose we're gonna take this as a theoretical possibility there can be other <laughs> similar relationships on different axes and maybe that one doesn't exist as in all long as a stenographer has noted my disapproval we may continue <laughs> down this route 
so I think that, you know, you see your opponent drafting an aggro deck, you want to draft a mid-range deck, and then your opponent says, okay, well, now I'll start drafting a control deck. I feel like there's this sort of, like, race to the bottom of just having the, trying to one-up your opponent in an, a two-player draft with this much agency. Yeah, and that doesn't even have to be that axis per se, right? Like, right, right. It could be any axis where there is this kind of linear relationship between what beats what, this kind of rock, paper, scissors, ness, and maybe that's not specific macro archetypes maybe that's colors maybe like blue in your environment is really favored against green because green's got a bunch of expensive spells and blue has cheap counter spells and so if your opponent's taking a bunch of five mana planeswalkers you take a bunch of cheap counter magic but then maybe your opponent's like i see him taking cheap counter magic so now i'm gonna take aggro threats or i guess i kind of just laid out the control mid-range aggro argument uh-huh, just bit. in different different ways so i don't know if that's a feature or a bug i feel like that can be fun for many people but for me it felt like it it was challenging in a way that wasn't exciting my sense of drafting this particular format is not that that's an intrinsic thing to the format necessarily. Uh, I think it's definitely possible to draft an aggro deck here, for example, if we again take that rock, paper, scissors of aggro mid-range control as red. And the argument is that, what you're, what you're essentially arguing is that it's easier to transition from mid-range to control where you have more cards overlapping than it is right. to transition from control all the way back to aggro. Which Saying have, like, okay, I'm going to abandon the first three packs and start taking all the one drops and then watch you just take all the wraths. And it's like, okay, well, what did I, what am I doing here? Right. Or even maybe another way to put this, which is even more blunt is just that maybe aggro in a lot of environments, maybe just my own has more specific counterplay where if you know your opponent is going to be just aggro and nothing else, right. It's so it's easier, very easy to have like easy to just brick wall that a single and say, card that can just destroy aggro where you, you beating the control deck means having an aggressive plan where all your cards are focused and work together, there isn't one card that just says aggro player or control well, player loses. Well, I mean, you could argue some cards say control player loses. For example, Cataxium Probe into Retrofitter Foundry. Binding Top, into Retrofitter <laughs> Foundry. That's a pretty good opening for control player That's loses. A convincing argument. Sylvan Library very often says control player loses, for example. Ooh, aggro Sylvan Library. There are definitely cards that do it. Anyway, I think that actually maybe is, the, is a better way to describe it, where it's like, I think drafting aggro in my environment is probably the most linear strategy you're like my plan is to go under everybody and maybe i need a a couple considerations for like the aggro mirror right i need to think about what i'm going to do when my opponent is similarly fast like what is my strategy going to be but you have a pretty focused game plan and if you're playing a mid-range deck which is if again we're adopting this thing which i don't love but i don't necessarily fully agree with but if you assume your mid-range deck and assume mid-range is naturally favored against aggro you also, as the mid-range deck, have to think about the control matchup, which is presumably, in this context, your... What are you smiling about over there? Uh, sorry, I'm not looking at Twitter. Definitely not. That's <laughs> how so you know it's a good podcast. It's a very good tweet. <laughs> Do you want to read it for the class? Nope. Okay. It's a picture. <laughs> Great. If we assume the mid-range deck is favored against aggro, drafting that mid-range deck, you also have to think about your mid-range matchup and your control matchup and so that's going to change the kinds of cards you take which will basically mean that not all of your cards are just going to brick wall aggro right some of them are going to be meant for other matchups if you're drafting heads up against one player and all you have to do is stop the aggro deck you don't have to worry about your opponent totally. also having a control strategy or having things that are bigger than yours then it is kind of easy to just stuff that strategy out without too much commitment which i think is going to be a feature of any kind of face up two player zero sum game but I, the, the thing that I love about Grid Draft, which this isn't quite going to knock Grid Draft off my number one two-player draft format yet, I don't think. We'll do I some agree. more testing. I agree for me as well. Uh, because there are some other really good features I want to talk about. But for that reason, the, the Grid Draft where it's like, oh, well, I, I can't necessarily always just take that Silver Bullet card because I need to also focus on my own plan. And there's some variance in those restrictions that I think leads to really interesting decisions. Let's talk about one more thing about Houseman Draft, which okay. I think is my favorite feature, Great. which is the partial hidden information the fact that you start with a hand of five and you do get to hide two of those or potentially more that is actually very fun you're right so i think that there's a really interesting interplay where you're you know some of what your opponent is doing you have seen some chunk of their cards but you're trying to figure out what their plan is and that plan is partially informed by information that you don't actually have so for example it's interesting seeing you look at me and say did you get uro in one of those packs i noticed you've started you know taking picks a little bit differently i i just i noticed in our first draft that you were 
taking green and blue cards higher than I would have. And mm-hmm. like I was like, what will put this man in green and blue committed? And I thought maybe Earl. And I was wrong. You didn't have Earl. But, but that was the thought I had, which is right. fun and interesting. And that was interesting what happened in the next draft. But yeah, I mean, that, that was a combination of, of getting some other things that were reasonable in green. And the fact that we had both been putting down good green cards seemed reasonable to try and do a little bit of a switch. But yeah, I think that that partial hidden information is really interesting. And I'm not saying I'm about to draft my own custom two-player or design my own two-player draft format, but thinking about how that is important and could be a feature of of different two-player formats is really interesting to me. Yeah, I really like that aspect too. In our second draft, I made different pick choices that were not just raw power level informed to explicitly try and hide my second color from you for like four or five packs. Sure. I had a couple packs where it was like, all right, I'm going to be... That might be my 24th card, so... Or, you know, you always play 16 lands, so let's call it a <laughs> I, I, 27th or, card. I think these two decks, I played 15 and 15 lands in both decks. How are you going to deal 16 damage to yourself with that few lands? It's, it's difficult. It's true. I, like, basically opened some really good cards in one color. I saw some really good cards in the first couple grids in a second color, and I very intentionally just chose to not take any of the cards in color A that I'd only seen in my hand from the grid, even maybe it was a slight improvement over a card in my hand. I was instead just taking, it was white in the second draft. I was just taking white cards from the grid. Pretty sure it was white. No, I can't remember. I, mean, I get the drafts confused. I was just committed to taking one color of cards from the, no, it was green. It they was, don't know. They're not going to look back and see it. You can just make up the details. It was actually green. <laughs> and I had good white cards that I had seen in my hand that I was basically concealing. I didn't take any other white cards for a long time. My hope was to send the signal that, oh, Andy, Andy's not drafting white, which I was hoping would not put you into it obviously, because I don't really want you in my color, or do I? It's hard to say. That's the other thing that's really challenging about both this and Grid Draft is hate drafting is viable. It's a zero-sum game. If you take your a card that your opponent you really needs to win. You did take a Wrath of God from me that you had no intention to play, as far as I could tell. I wasn't sure where I was going yet at that point, but yeah. I mean, I tried to do a thing. I tried to put Wrath of God down. I was like, he's not going to take this. He's taking no white cards. I know he's not a control deck. I'll be able, to pick, this, I'll be able to pick this right back up. And then uh, you took it, and I was like, oh, dang. But you put a Toxic Deluge down to take it, and I was playing Mm-hmm. Asper control. So I was like, that's fine. I'll okay. just take the date. Which is yeah, it didn't, it didn't go great. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend that decision. That's always going to be a feature of these kinds of formats where taking something away from your opponent can be as good as getting something for your own deck. So again, I think that that is more extreme here where where the picks are. Well, it's, it's both more extreme because you can, you know, just target. That's the card you need. I'm going to take it. Whereas a grid draft, you have you're making some more sacrifices because each pick is tied to other cards that you're taking. Well, here there's also a sacrifice too, which is that like in this situation where I have tried to deceive you into not knowing I'm in a color, there are potential cons for me, which is that I could put you in that color, which is definitely a con because right. then you're just taking, we're competing for cards in the grid, which is going to make both of our decks a little worse. So maybe it's not a con, but there's a potential pro, which is what I was hoping for, which is that you'll think, this guy hasn't taken any white cards. Even though this is a pretty good white card in my hand, I'll just drop it on the table because I'm not worried about him getting it for his deck to pick up his other thing that I want. Then I'll get to pick up that card and put it in my pool. I mean, I think that might have been what I think I was thinking was you put down a good white card. Maybe that means you're not playing white cards. So we that's were like good... three quarters of the way through the draft at that point. So I think there was also just nothing else in that particular <laughs> okay. pack that mattered. So, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like often in grid drafts, I'll end up with one color that is shared with my opponent just because there are many picks where it's like, yeah, I want to hate draft that from you. And then now I have this good card as well. So is it worth me trying to splash for it? Or if I get the right fixing, can I actually support being in that color as well? And it weirdly happens pretty often, I think. And see, I would I would even say that your like good stuff criticism of Halspin draft, I think is more true of grid draft for very different reasons. And the reasons are just that you have a lot less agency over your picks. You do end so, up with yeah incidental cards that you want to potentially try. So you're like get trying to get to playables in some ways. Or if you were to like take your pool from a grid draft and have that be your pool from an eight person draft, you'd be like, well, this went awfully. I did terribly. Obviously, it's zero sum. So you, both your pools are a little bit more diverse or a little bit less focused, which is fine. And in both these formats, we should say that you could just put more packs in a grid draft and that, yeah, take some packs out of the house of draft. Critical dimension. Yeah, and I actually think both of them. There's other costs. You're not just making the decks more powerful or less powerful. You're also decreasing or increasing the value of individual picks and it is you're twisting a lot of knobs when you do that but it's an option you have so in a grid draft deck you're just kind of like well i got these cards i'm going to try and do the best to cobble a deck together out of them i actually do like that in some ways even if we put aside the uh the argument that maybe it's not smart to draft aggro in a a somewhat face-up environment because your opponent can just draft some cards that trump out that strategy even if you wanted to draft aggro it's very difficult to do in a grid draft you could absolutely draft a focus aggro deck in houseman draft if you wanted to 
Whether you should or not, that's up for debate. But you could definitely do it because you have more control over those picks. You can draft a much more focused deck here, and you're going to get tons of fixing if you have as much fixing. I mean, that's, I guess that's true no matter what. You're going to get more. If you prioritize fixing, you're going to get more of whatever you prioritize in these kinds of decks than you are in an eight-person draft. Because assuming you prioritize more or less the same thing as the other players, you're just getting a bigger pool to prioritize those things from. And so... Whatever right, you care almost, about, you're going to get a lot of it. It's almost like leaning towards Supreme Deck where you or Supreme Draft where you get first picks from fresh packs. You just get first picks from the, the sets of cards uh, for each round in these draft formats. The last tiny, tiny little quibble I would make is specifically for me, a person who has done a ton of grid drafts, doing a Houseman draft and looking at a grid of nine cards kept throwing me off and I kept looking at it and thinking, oh, yeah. oh I want to take a row or column. Mm-hmm. So I might next time just like, lay them out in a different way because oh, of that, sure. like, actually being a grid doesn't matter for this format of yeah course, sure yeah. here's the pile take what you want yeah um and and to that end you're mentioning that you can vary the, the pack size you can also vary the number of cards that you put on the table for each round so there are a lot of knobs that you can yeah turn. there's no reason it has to be nine either you could be whatever you yeah. want because again that grid shape is irrelevant so a lot of wheels to turn are there any doors to open i do wonder if there's a way to tweak this so that you aren't forced to pick and what the we should just try it sometime where you're not forced to pick and see what the natural problems that occur are. I think you pointed out a lot of things which seem like big advantages to being forced to take a pick, but I'm also curious to see if there are other ways to solve some of those problems and maybe tweak this a little bit. But like you said, I think the thing I'm most like I wanted to do a show about this because I want everyone to know this is another way to draft their cubes. More way to draft cubes is just better for everybody. The same way that it's silly to complain about magic cards being printed you don't like it's something to complain about draft formats that are popular you don't like because it's just more for everybody do whatever you Assuming want you're playing cube yes so yeah if you're playing constructed you can complain all you want yeah, that's, go why for we, it. that's why we don't do that i want everyone to know about this draft format and I, I think the the main appeal is powerful decks very powerful decks that can be very focused and the the costs are maybe it's not the most fun draft format because you are forced to make I, mean, I think that high agency very complex decisions can be fun for a lot of people I just want to draw a distinction here because there are definitely high agency, very complex draft formats that never put you in this position of having to make yes. your pool worse. Like it's a strictly a byproduct of the forced picks and the like fixed size hand that you do end up making decisions that just feel bad, which I don't think is true of any other draft format I've ever done. Would so you, that's a fact. Would you do a houseman draft with the misery cube? Mm, boy, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I. Ugh. That would be. No, I think. Here's, no, we found the line. I, well, so I think that would be very deterministic in the sense that, like, the Misery Cube, you largely end up losing to Mill. And so you have to draft ways to recycle your library. And if you're seeing that much of the pool and you're both getting this much agency, you're both going to have tons of ways to recycle your library and the games are never going to end. That is my fear about the uh, Houseman draft of the Misery Cube. Great point. Let's touch briefly on a couple of other two-player draft formats while we're doing it, just so we can kind of cover them somewhat comprehensively. I'll explain the rules briefly, but you can, of course, find them online. We should say, too, we have added a draft formats section to our website kind of quietly. We have a very high standard of quality, Lucky Paper, which is just kind of the nature Maybe of... Maybe not for the podcast, but... No, we do for everything. <laughs> I, you you see, do for the editing. You see much edit this podcast. We have a high standard of quality, which sometimes gets in our own way and keeps us from doing stuff until it's exactly perfect. I would not say these draft format explainers are perfect, but they are up. They are available. So you can check them out on our website or you can find them on Google. Just Google these formats. You can find the rules there as well. The next two that I kind of have grouped together that I think are uh, kind of the old school popular two-player draft formats are Winston and Winchester. Both of these are designed to also work with booster packs. So they have a much smaller card pool, which means that your decks are going to be much less powerful than a grid draft or a houseman draft, certainly. In Winston draft, you take 90 cards, which is the equivalent of six. I see you. I'm not looking Twitter at a tweet. I'm, not, I'm thinking about the, the first tweet. <laughs> okay, great. Taking notes. This is a sloppy one, but it's fine. It's before our break week. In Winston draft, you take 90 cards from the cube, which if you're drafting with booster packs, would be just six booster packs. Each player coming to the table with three. You put those cards all shuffled up in a big stack. And then you put them face down into three piles on the table of just one card. So you get your, your 90 card stack and you do one card face down on the table. Then you're going to alternate. Each player is going to, starting on the same side, so you're going to choose like a direction for this these piles to go. You're going to look at the card that's face down and then you're either going to take it or not. And if you choose not to take it, you add another card to the top of that card face down without looking at it and you move on to the next pile and you peek at it and you can either take it or not. And again, if you don't take it, you get another card from the random stack on top, face down. You don't see what that card is. 
And you do that for all three piles. If you get to the end, you don't want any of the cards in the piles. You can just take a random card off the top of the stack. And now when your opponent goes, they have some number of piles of two cards, right? Like if you didn't take the first stack, but you took the second stack, uh, now they have a stack of two, a stack of one, and a stack of one. And so when they look at that stack of two, they're going to get both those cards for their pool if they decide to take that stack. This is like an old school draft format that frankly, I don't think is that great. Uh, I think it's complicated. It's hard to describe. It's kind of hard to get the idea across to people. And you really end up with a big mess of a deck, frankly, because you end up taking these piles of cards where you get piles of five or six cards and you really only want two of them, but it's good enough now for you to take the whole stack. And so you get all these cards you don't care about in your pool and the pool size is small. So you end up with really good stuffy decks. It's definitely a draft format. You can do it if you want. I think it's a great way to draft for two players with booster packs, but I wouldn't do it in my cube, frankly. Yeah, it's fair. And again, you can definitely change the numbers, but we just don't haven't done a lot of playtesting to see like, yeah. does tweaking some of these numbers work better. Uh, if you're doing that playtesting, let us know and we'll update the resource. Winchester is uh, is kind of a combination of Winston and Rochester draft, which is another name for rotisserie draft, which I think is actually a big improvement over Winston draft. This is a format where you each get 45 cards randomly shuffled or open three booster packs, shuffle them together. You each turn over two face-up cards. Now we have four face-up piles on the table. And then, again, alternate choosing one of the piles. And then after a pile is chosen, you put a new card on top of every pile. So we're going to have four piles of one. Anthony's going to take whatever card he wants. Then we're going to have three piles of two and one pile of one. I'm going to take whatever pile I want, and so on and so forth. Similar thing to the Winston draft, where you end up with a bunch of incidental picks where you didn't actually want, because, again, a stack gets pretty big with a bunch of junky cards or narrow cards that don't work in your deck. But then you put a really good card on top of it, so you take that whole pile. And again, same issue with the pool size. I think the draft format is much more fun. It's more fun to do it face up, and it's much less complicated. It's kind of less fiddly than having to look at these piles and remember where things are. The fact that you always put a card down, like it just runs a little bit smoother, in my opinion. The other two-player draft formats that are popular, as far as I can tell, are largely burn draft formats. There's a lot of unique ones here, like Glimpse Draft and... Minneapolis draft and impulse draft and site draft. These are all just different combinations of burn draft where you're looking at packs of different sizes and you have some different pattern of choosing cards for your deck and burning cards from the pack in different combinations. So the, the core concept of a burn draft is, oh, instead of having eight players that are all picking cards, if we only have four players, you can kind of simulate an eight-player draft by saying, well, take one card from the pack and then discard another card that just goes, you know, it's not included in the draft anymore, right. which means the same number of cards are coming out of packs, so you can feel like you're drafting a whole cube with a smaller group. Uh, and then we can take that to these extremes where you're just playing with two players and all kinds of different ways you can choose to organize. At what point, how many cards are you picking from a pack right. versus how many are you burning? Yeah. And these formats, I think, work fine. I've done a lot of these with a friend that preferred this over any kind of grid drafting for his particular cube. And my main complaint about them is I think they actually work if everybody in participating kind of doesn't try to min-max it, right? Like, again, the spirit of a burn draft is that you are essentially picking on behalf of these invisible players, right? And the idea is, oh, I'll just take the best cards out of this pack because you would never expect to get a fetch land or uh, a big bomb like this on pick four. And so I'll just pretend I'm one of these players and I'll take this card out of that pack so that, you know, that's kind of how this works. What happens in reality is it's really hard to draft stacks or control in these drafts. What? People just take, take stacks cards and take wraths when they're drafting creature decks. Oh, sure. Okay. Your allusion to stacks confused me because what cubes have stacks in we've ever played? I mean, it's been a while since we've done like a four-player burn draft. Sure. If you draft it in this spirit of like, I'll just take some of these good cards out of here, right? Like, I'll just get rid of some of these best cards and just like burn them. Then I think it actually works pretty well. If you try really hard, if you're if you're a sweaty try hard about grid drafting, I think it hey, kind of... Hey, trying hard is part of the game. <laughs> I, I Look, I agree. I, I'm, the, I'm the person that is the first to try and break all these things. I, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the one to point the blame at. But... These formats, in my opinion, really degenerate and kind of fall apart a little bit once you start to actually min-max it. So, for example, the strategy I ended up adopting pretty much every time I would end up doing these burn drafts with my friend was just what I'm going to do is in the first half of the packs or third of the packs, I'm going to take and burn all of the cards in my colors. I'm going to forget wheeling. And most of these formats, you only get two picks out of a pack or maybe three. So, like, don't even try to wheel things through somebody. I'm just going to basically leave them. And a lot of cases, the number of cards you burn, you can pretty much leave them with no other option. They basically have to take cards in these other colors you're handing them because you've taken everything else out of the pack. And then 
in the second part of the pack, you know what colors your opponent is in now, pretty much, because you forced them to play a certain color, more or less, and you oftentimes be wheeling cards in the colors you were cutting. Now, this is a game, right? So theoretically, in game theory dictates that my opponent could know I'm doing this and try to counterplay against it. And my point is, that if you're both doing that, then you're basically racing to the worst possible deck. Like if you're, I think, really trying to min-max burn drafting, what you are doing with those maximizing those little edges is making your opponent's deck worse. And so if your opponent is also maximizing and optimizing their burn drafting and making your deck worse, then you end up with two players with bad decks and it's not particularly fun. For me, the, the idea of both players end up with bad decks isn't so much an issue, but I do think that when you try and min-max it, sure, you're making meaningful decisions, you're still doing this whole game theory thing. I just don't find that experience particularly fun when you're optimizing that. I mean, just to put it a different way, it's like, if you're trying to even make the good faith, I'm just going to, you know, take out whatever I think is the next best card from this pack. That's still not a decision that I find particularly fun. Even if you're doing that, look at the burn pile at the end of the draft. And it's like, there's all the cool, powerful cards that nobody got yeah. to play because we took all the cool, powerful cards out because they were the good cards. Like, it's a, it's a draft format that is intentionally saying, choose the cards you don't want to play against. And right. the cards you don't Stacks. want to play against are <laughs> often going to be the more powerful, interesting, uh, like signpost cards that you put in your cube because they were right. like your Where power it's like outliers. really easy to torpedo a certain deck that requires on it you know getting exactly splinter twin kiki jiki maybe even a more concise way to put it is like we've talked about how you should obviously make the strategies you like the winning strategies make winning fun like mm -hmm. make the right yeah. thing the fun thing and then the correct thing to do and so here you're rewarding your players for intentionally stripping their opponents of the opportunity to do that so Look, it works. I've done a lot of these drafts. I know that some people are huge fans of them. I'm not like crazy critical of them. Still magic. Six out of ten would play again. Right. I'll, but I'll, I'm going to go for the sevens and eights. Here's what I will say. Stop making up new combinations of burn draft formats and giving it a, <laughs> a, a name and acting like you invented something. It's just burn draft, people. I, I get confused when people use all these different names. I can't even tell you what any of these individual ones are. I just... No, they're all bird draft formats. There's so many of them floating around. I'm going to make a new format. It's just grid draft, but it has one extra pack, and that's the Anthony draft. There you go. <laughs> the 19-pack grid draft, which heavily favors the player that goes first because they mm -hmm. get an oh, additional row of three. Yeah. That's the Anthony draft Actually, signature. the Anthony draft is probably, oh, we have two extra cards in the pool. I guess we'll roll a die twice okay, that's, and see who gets You've the been doing that lately, and that is very tilting to me. <laughs> I can't believe... So, like, you're a regular cube specifically. We needed to count out a bunch of cards to make packs to, like, first shuffle up the pool that we we're building packs from. And then somebody miscounted. We had two extra cards. This happened a couple times. But this only really matters because it's your regular cube where you've intentionally seeded some number of rares. Right. So the idea that you would even care about those two cards are, you're like, maybe these are two of my 36 right, rares. Right, exactly. So I if don't it was a normal, normal situation, we would just say, like, oh, put that, you know, put those two cards with the extra cards. But, but here you're like, I don't want to risk the chance that the 7% chance mm -hmm. that one of my rares goes away in those cards. So now two random players have 16 card packs, which extremely tilting to me. <laughs> I, I, I'm glad you can handle it, but that, I, boy. I mean, you're only making me want to do it more, packs, right? I know. Fair, fair enough. Well, what can I say? And they also have two-player draft formats, Anthony. Other than do them. If you're not drafting your cube with two players, just do it. You can play your cube more often. It's great. Any of these formats is way better than not playing cube, even the ones we've been very critical about. That is correct. Yeah, it's a great summary. And on that bombshell... That's it for this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. As I mentioned next week, there will not be a normal episode of Lucky Paper Radio in your feed as we are taking a, a much-earned week off. Thanks for all your feedback about uh, microwaves and pizza stones and all the various things from last week. I got to say, it is it how telling is it that discussion of kitchen stuff generates so much more feedback than discussion of magic stuff? Does, does that mean something? Should we be like, reading into that at all? No. I think it's maybe. a more interesting topic. I agree. <laughs> I like food more than I like magic. That's saying a lot. Anyway, that's it for the show. All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. This show is produced by Anthony and I talking about magic cards in his basement after thinking about them very hard. Thanks for doing magic. Thanks for doing magic, Pies. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Thank you also for the magic, Bob. <laughs> Thanks for doing them. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to edit that. This is already a fun... It's a fun one. When we stumble over something and then we like reference it or... Well, actually, you know what happens more often is we stumble over something, we have a little laugh, but then our tone of voice has changed. Because like mm -hmm. right after you laugh, everyone's voice gets like higher in pitch. And so even though I can edit out the stumble, we'll be listening to the podcast and be like, yeah, I'm playing this cards. 
And then anyway, I got this other part. It's like <laughs> the voice changes completely. And it's like, well, that doesn't work. I got to leave that part in. There's going to be a lot of that in this episode. to vacuuming them what were you doing before that you actually taking them all outside one by one individually no i tried burning them, <laughs> <laughs> them. just you, you gave up on burning them to uh resort to vacuuming them it's faster that's pretty good pretty good <laughs>